Well, good morning, everyone. Indeed, it is a great day to give thanks to the Lord. And we look forward to continuing to celebrate this afternoon. And I pray that you make arrangements to be here as we get together and share testimonies and sing and fellowship together, enjoy a good meal, and enjoy an even better God. And so come and join us this afternoon. Um, we'll have an open mic time. I look forward to hearing how the Lord has blessed and worked through our lives over this past year. And I'm thankful this morning for a church that loves the Word of God. I'm thankful this morning for a team of leaders that wants us to stay close to the Word. I'm thankful for a good staff team that I can work with. I'm thank thankful for Pastor Brian, who's not only a colleague but a dear friend and, and not a bad preacher of the Word, I might say, right? So it's, it's, good to, it's good to be in the presence of the Lord this morning. Missionary Jim Elliott went out to a remote area of Central America to bring the gospel to an unreached people called the, the Aqua people in Ecuador. He knew that as he went out, his life would be on the line. In a college, he had shown a lot of zeal for the Lord and a commitment to the gospel and a readiness to invest his life in the cause of Christ. He had a burden for those living in darkness and wanted to be part of the solution of bringing them into the light. Perhaps his most famous quote found in his diary is, he who is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He had an understanding that his life was no longer his own. It belonged to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he couldn't keep his life, but he could go out and give his life so that he would have eternal life and, and those that had not heard about Christ would have the opportunity to hear. And he would not be a silent witness. He was one who was known to preach the gospel with great vigor. And he went on to the mission field where he didn't last very long before he was martyred for his faith. But in his diaries, after his martyrdom, his wife began to accumulate the sayings and put them together in a book. And one of the sayings there gives us an idea of what kind of life he wanted to live. He said, Father, make me a man of crisis. Bring those I contact to a decision. Let me not be a milepost on a single road. Make me a fork that men must turn one way or another on facing Christ in me. Jim Elliott learned the lesson of what it meant to take up the cross and follow Jesus, to die to self so that others might hear how they can truly live. As we come to this next section, as we study the Gospel of Matthew together, we'll see that Jesus will issue a clarion call about the purpose and the reason that he came to earth. There was sin, there was rebellion, there was spiritual darkness, death. They all needed to be defeated. So he came as the light of the world and the Lord of life. And because of who he is as the Son of Man and the Son of God, he is able to make the highest claim on the lives of those who confess him as Lord and able to reward those who not only serve him, but who enable others to serve him, whether in gestures big or small. And so as we look at this next section of the gospel according to Matthew, this morning we come to chapter 10, verses 34 to 42, where Jesus will teach us about swords and rewards. So I invite you to stand in honor of God and his holy word as we read the passage that we will study this morning. And the eternal, truthful, inspired, authoritative word of God 
says, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet, because he is a prophet, will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person, because he is a righteous person, will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water, because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. As God has given us his holy word under the inspiration of his Holy Spirit, let us receive it for the blessing and edification in which it was intended. Let us pray. Father, in this holy moment, on this day, as we give thanks for who you are and for all that you have done, we are mindful that we are a needy people. And so we turn to you and ask you to do the work in our hearts and minds and wills and souls that only you can do, that you're good at it through your spirit. And we open ourselves to your word this morning and ask that you would open that word to us, that we would hear from you, that we'd be changed, that we would be challenged, that we would be edified that you would be glorified. So to that end, we pray as we prepare to hear from your word, as we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. For those of you joining us online this morning, thank you for being with us. We wish you could be here. We know you wish you could be here. But we sense your presence and we gather around the throne of grace together this morning. So I invite you wherever you are to open to your copy of God's word to Matthew chapter 10. And in Matthew chapter 10, we see that Jesus has sent out the 12 apostles to begin their ministry. He first sends them to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and is also going to prepare them for their eventual ministry to go to Gentiles. And in that preparation, he tells them that there will be persecution and suffering that will be the expected experience and lot of those who belong to Christ. He has already warned us once that divisions over him will come even from within one's own family. And therefore, we should not be surprised when it happens, but rather continue in faith and obedience to the one who has called us. Do not deny me, he warns, warned us last week in the passage that Pastor Brian led us through. And as disciples follow Jesus, proclaiming the gospel, they will experience opposition. And Jesus said they will become like their teacher, like their master. And imagine the promise and the blessing of becoming like Jesus. Not only in the blessings of answered prayer, not only in the experiences of great ministry, but in experiencing hostility and persecution that will come because of our service to the Lord. He warns his disciples that opponents will go even further and to call them evil, call them servants even of the devil, just like they did with Jesus. But even though men may call us evil and they may say that we are opposed to the the right story of history, the disciple is called to keep serving Jesus. For death, as we have seen, is not the worst thing that can happen to the Christian. 
Upon death, he sees his Savior face to face. No, indeed, it is far worse to deny Jesus, because Jesus has said, if we deny him before men, he will deny us before his Father in heaven. After all, he's already warned us in, the, in this gospel that not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. And surely, there are no more frightening words that we've heard so far in the gospel according to Matthew. Well, with all that as an introduction, and as you have your sermon outline in front of you, or perhaps the app on your phone, if you've not already downloaded the church app, I encourage you to do that. You can keep up to date with the announcements of the church, and you can take notes uh, during the sermon that you can share with someone in, a, in an easier manner throughout the week. Well, we get to our first major point this morning, Jesus the sword bringer. Jesus the sword bringer. Our text begins with Jesus saying, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. What an amazing statement. But if we concentrate initially on that first part of the phrase, I have come, we see there's more here than meets the eye. See, oftentimes in the gospel, Jesus will use this expression, I have come. And it's a reminder that his origins were not here on the earth. He has come from the realms of heaven as this eternal son of God who steps down out of eternity to enter space and time to be the savior and redeemer of his people. He says, I have come, knowing that he has divine intention, knowing that he has divine origin, that he has divine purpose. And this is not the first time Jesus tells us why he has come. Just a few references in the gospel according to Matthew tell us some of the reasons why he has come. In 517, he said, I've come to fulfill the law and the prophets. In 9 verse 13, he said, I came not to call the righteous, but the wicked, the sick, to repentance. In chapter 20, verse 28, he says, I have came not, I've come not to be a servant, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. Jesus, the sword bringer, tells us why he has come, and he reminds us that the cross divides. The cross divides divides. We've already seen several reasons that Jesus has given for why he has come to earth, but now he says what he came not to do. He said, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. Twice he tells us, I have not come to bring peace. And initially, this, this is a radical statement that falls on our ears, and especially in the context of the first century where there was such emphasis on social cohesion that this would have been a surprising statement for people to hear. And so we might ask, how can it be? How can the one who said, blessed be the peacemakers, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, or the one who said, my peace I give you, my peace I leave with you, or the one who came to be called the prince of peace, how can he now say that he came not to bring peace? So the question might seem like a bit of an enigma, but actually the answer is not that complicated. Jesus brings peace to those who confess their sins, to those who humble themselves before the Lord, to those who repent, turn away from their wicked ways, and turn to the Lord. To them, he brings peace. But he cannot bring peace to those who oppose him. One either believes in Jesus as Lord and Savior, and Judge, and King, or one rejects him. There is no middle ground, Jesus says. He cannot bring peace to those who hate him, who hate his ways, who hate his disciples. He cannot bring peace to those who do not trust him. 
The meaning of the word peace here comes from the Hebrew word shalom. Shalom is not just simply a lack of conflict. Shalom is a sense of well-being with God and with others. Shalom is this idea that we have the smile of God upon our lives because we have found favor with him in Christ. So we, we who are in Christ, yes, we can have peace, but it will bring division with those who are not in Christ. In the bringing of peace, there will be the conflict between good and evil, between those who are of God and those who are of the world. When Jesus came into the world saying, I have not come to bring peace but a sword, he is saying, I'm coming to bring an all-out assault against evil, against sin, against wickedness. But I will overcome them, he reminds us, through my righteous life and my atoning death. As Jesus attacks the very source of sin, he reminds us that those who are in sin cannot expect to just lie on a bed of ease in Zion. And that we who are in Christ cannot expect that bed of ease, bed of ease either because just as they opposed Jesus, so they will oppose us. So the message of the cross is salvation for those who hear it. For those who believe it, who repent, who accept it, they have peace with God. But it's death for those who oppose it. And as we're reminded by G.K. Chesterton, the cross cannot be defeated for it is defeat. Christ came to defeat sin and evil and death and destruction and the devil. He brings peace for those who believe in him. But in the bringing of that peace, there is conflict. And while we long for a better day when all conflict is put aside and all the enemies have been put under the feet of Christ, we know the hope that we have is that will happen one day when he returns in power and great glory to establish righteousness over the renewed heavens and the renewed earth. But until that day, the preaching of the cross will bring divisions. And it is the cross that is to bring divisions, the message of the kingdom of heaven that brings divisions. And we do well to be students of church history to see how the church has done well and has not done well in this area. For the fact remains that church history is full of examples where divisions came not because of the preaching of the cross, but because of man-made or culture or customs or flesh or other things that brought division among the people of God. And so we do well to say, yes, he came to bring a sword but we're to be the proclaimer of the one who brings the sword and let that message be what divides, not anything that finds its origin in us. And all of us are so susceptible and prone to cause division where it need not be caused. So as the cross divides, he goes on to remind us that there are enemies from within. As the text goes on, he says, For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. What an amazing statement, as I said, in a culture where they emphasize social cohesion and passing on of lessons from one generation to the next, and all living in close proximity, and uniting against different tribes, different nations, because they wanted to emphasize their family. But he's already reminded us earlier in chapter 10 that divisions will come from the, within one's own family. He has come to bring a sword of separation. He's quoting here from among other places, Micah chapter 7 verse 6. In the context where there would be division that would take place among even those that claim to be the people of God. 
Perhaps there's a reference here to the last verses of the Old Testament, the book of Malachi, where with the promise of the coming of Elijah or the one coming in the spirit and power of Elijah and in the Messiah, the intent was to turn the hearts of the fathers towards the children and the children towards the fathers, lest God comes and strikes the land with judgment. And Jesus came into the world as the Messiah, and that separation was happening. And in fact, in the land of Israel, the judgment of God did fall upon the city of Jerusalem in 70 AD. This is a challenging statement that comes from the lips of our Lord Jesus Christ. If we think about the implications in the ancient world and in a practice continued in many places today, the relationship between father and son and the expected respect that would be given to the father as the lead of the family was such that it was the, seen as the deepest sign of loyalty. And a father-son relationship could only be broken under the most serious of circumstances. And so in many places today, because that value is carried on, where you honor the father in the family, above all, you might hear things like, well, family above all, or family comes first, or family united against the world. And here Jesus confronts that claim directly. It says, no, Jesus above all, me above all. He has come to bring in a new righteousness, a new kingdom over which he is king, a new family that he is building, this family of the redeemed that he will usher in to the new heavens and the new earth to be with him forever. Even to the point where a daughter-in-law would be separated against her mother-in-law. In the practice of that time, a, a, a young lady would leave her own family, and come under the umbrella of her father's family. That was what expected. That was why the dowry was paid, because of the loss that would come from the work that the daughter would perform for her family. She would go and join her husband's family. And it was expected that the mother-in-law and the daughter-in-law would develop this affectionate relationship that would be familial. Life was hard in those days, and it was expected that women would hang together. They needed to hang together. And so if this relationship was divided, this young woman would find herself very much alone. But even in that most intimate of relationships, Jesus says he is to be the top priority. He's to be number one over everyone and over everything. Jesus gets to the heart of the matter of the natural love that takes place between parents and children. And there should be this affection and love between parents and children. We love our kids. We love our grandkids. One of the greatest joys I have in my life is being the father of three children and two children-in-law. And I look forward to being a grandfather one day. And I will be an active grandfather as God gives me strength. But there's one thing they will all know. Jesus is the highest priority in my life. Because that's what he's commanded me to. That's what he's called me to. But Jesus clearly states that there will be enemies from within. But he's promised it. And in spite of the fact that he has promised it, he still says that he's to have the highest loyalty of the Christian. In emotion, in commitment, in actual action, above family, above culture, above work, above anything else, because he is to be the highest priority. And he says, following me is of such importance that it may even result in family ties becoming strained and even break because of divided loyalty. But Jesus brings the sword. He will separate out those who belong to him and those who do not. So we ask the question, who is your greatest love?
Whoever loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. These are hard words, amazing words from the lips of Jesus. He says you can't even love your own children more than him. After all, who's the one that gave us children? But the way we love our children, which we want to do, the way we love our spouses, which we want to do, the way we love our parents, which we want to do, is to love Jesus first. As we tap into loving the Lord Jesus Christ first, his energy and love and power pour through us so that we are able to love our families. But Jesus himself knew that division would come in families and it even came in his own family. Where in John chapter 7 verse 5, his own brothers opposed him. And we see elsewhere where his mother even at times opposed him. His brothers opposed him. He knew what it was to have the division come even within his own family. And yet, he still calls us to make him number one. There may be a challenge that comes to us as we come to Christ. Perhaps you didn't grow up in a Christian family and you come to Christ and the effects that come from the gospel can't help but be showed as you share and you, you talk about what has happened to you. And then some in your own family will believe and, and some will not. Some will repent of their sins and some will not. The questions begin to come. Well, are you now better than us? Are you saying that we're going to hell? What about so-and-so? What about uncle so-and-so who is named the list? Is he going to hell too? I heard these old things in my own family. By the grace of God, I was the first one that came to faith in Christ. And as Christ continued to grow me and I started to preach the gospel, I heard those things at family gatherings. Jesus said it will happen. Divisions will come even within our own family. Because he knew that division. And yet he said, follow me. To be worthy of Christ is to show that Christ is worthy of our greatest devotion and dedication. Think about what Jesus is asking here. Not asking commanding. This is a claim to his lordship. This is a claim to his deity. This is a claim to his right to rule and reign over our lives. In a day when that father-son relationship, when that mother-daughter relationship was seen as the highest value, Jesus insists on a higher devotion still. But who could ask for such a thing unless he were God himself? No mere mortal could, could make such a claim and not be thought mad or foolish or silly or arrogant. But it's Jesus who makes the claim and insists that we must repent and put him first. And so we have to ask ourselves the question, do those around us know that Jesus is first in our lives? Are we really focusing and building in our own relationship with the Lord that it's obvious to those around us that he is number one and as a result of him being number one in our lives, we are better able to serve those that are around us. And so let's take that on then as an opportunity and as a challenge, parents, grandparents. Mothers, model for your kids that Jesus is first by showing them that you need time with Jesus each day. Teach them the songs, teach them the verses, that Jesus is the greatest, that Jesus is the best. Fathers, show that Jesus is first by spending time with him daily in prayer and devotional reading. Take your priestly responsibility before God to lead your wives and children in the ways of the Lord. Make those hard decisions that we all face as men 
with the challenges that come upon us on our schedules. Make a willful decision led by the Spirit of God to, to put down the saw, to come in from the garage, come home early from work, set aside the remote control, spend time with your family, teach them the ways of God, teach them the things of Christ. Let them see your walk with the Lord. Let them hear your singing songs of praise to the Lord. Let them hear your prayers over them. Let them hear about your devotion and how Christ is your all in all, that your kids will grow up in the security of knowing that we have a great Savior with whom we're going to spend eternity. Love the Lord first. And in loving the Lord first, you will love your wives and children best and showing them that it is really all about God and his kingdom and seeking him first and his righteousness. And as Jesus is challenging us to put him first, even in the most intimate relationships in our lives, he says the walk of death leads to life. And whoever does not take, up his, not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. So we're reminded to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, this first in priority, first in energy, first in emotional commitment, God first in everything. And then those things that we need and other things that he has promised, he said he will give. And so contrary to what we sometimes hear, I make the case that it is he who is the most heavenly minded who accomplishes the most earthly good. Because he who is in tune with the will and ways of God will give his or her life so that God can be using his or her life for maximal input here on the earth. By contrast, the one who does not take up his cross, which after all was an instrument of execution, Jesus says, is not worthy of me. In those days, it would be a common sight to see a man carrying his crossbeam surrounded by a small group of Roman soldiers. The man would be, would be a criminal and he would carry his beam to the place where he would be crucified. And along the way, it was the common practice to insult them, to jeer them, to mock them. After all, they were seen as worthy of what they were going to. And everybody knew what it meant to carry one's cross. You see, the carrying of the cross only went in one direction. There was only one outcome. And there was no turning back. You carried your own cross to your own death. And I think about what the Lord Jesus Christ did. And we've sung it already many times in our service this morning. He took up his cross, knowing that there would be no turning back. In fact, with Jesus, there could never be any turning back. Because from all eternity, he knew what he would do when he came to earth and who he would redeem and how he would redeem them. And he went through it for us. And now, he says, what I went through, I want you to be willing to do. It's one way. One outcome, one direction, no turning back. Now, it might be the case, and is often the case for most of us, that we will not be called to die a martyr's death. Though thousands of believers every year around the world are called to die a martyr's death. No, it might be that we have to actually go through something a little more difficult. We might have to die to self daily, to our own ambitions to our own desires, to our own flesh, to our own wants and needs of using things for our own purposes. But we have the call here. We can't go back to Christ later on and say, well, uh, I didn't know what I was supposed to do. 
well, Lord, you didn't really mean it. Or, Lord, I just presumed that you would be gracious to me. Now he's already called us and commanded us to renounce our lives, to live for a new master, for a new orientation. Now, it's not the case today that we see men carrying around cross beams going off to their own crucifixion, though it still happens today. There are Christians in different places in the world that are mocked and killed through crucifixion. But that's not our experience here. So we might think of something that we might be a little more used to, or at least we're a little more aware of what it is. So we might say, well, take up the blade of the guillotine. Take up the sword of the executioner. Take up the switchboard that turns on the electric chair. Whatever Jesus calls us to, he says, take up a means of your own execution so that you die to your old way of living, that your old man is dead and you're now new in Christ and you're living with a new direction and a new purpose. To live is Christ, my friends, and to die is gain. As I said a couple weeks ago in a sermon, just borrowing from another brother, the Christian will not see death. Well, the body will wear down, the breath might come to an end, there'll be pain, and at that next moment, you're with Jesus. You won't see death. And so to live with Christ and to die is gain. Is that the reality in your life? Do you live and die daily for Christ? Now, if you're like me, your honest answer is, not as much as I would like to say. And all of us have that need to continue to correct our use of time, our attitudes, our language, how we interact with people. Put it back on grace and let the grace of God bring the joy to your heart so that you desire to obey Christ. Don't turn it into a legalistic checkmark, checklist. Love the Lord so much, say, just lead me wherever you will lead me. And I'll do whatever you want me to do. Then I'll say whatever you want me to say and do it with him and for him. And you'll find that that is the most joyful life there can be. Jesus says, whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And once again, as we've seen already many times in the gospel, according to Matthew, Jesus reverses the natural order of things. In Jesus... Losing is winning, and trying to win is losing. Trying to make your own way, trying to do things strictly according to your own purposes, trying to become all that you can be by your own means, by your own efforts, by your own wisdom means that you're focused on yourself. When Jesus calls us to the very opposite, focus on me. I've done it, I've walked it, I've fulfilled it, I've prepared for it. The statistics are clearer. The testimonies are clearer. Those who run after beauty, power, prestige, wealth, those who seek to grab all the gusto they can grab will find life empty and still miss Jesus. See, the words here for to lose mean to destroy. In other contexts, they're translated as to destroy. That puts a different light on what it means to run after the things of this world. So uh, if we're running after the things of this world that will ultimately destroy our lives, they'll be destroyed as well. After all, what good are money and trophies and toys before the Holy One when we stand in final judgment? 
but joyful is the one who is standing there clothed in the righteousness of Christ, who didn't love his life so much that he would not deny his Savior, but would boldly proclaim him and go on in, in faithfulness. As one commentator says, we need to realize that self-seeking is self-defeating. So find Jesus and find true life. Live for the Lord. You'll have the peace that he brings, the joy that he gives, and the hope that we can have. And then, after we have experienced the fruit of the Spirit in this life and are growing in maturity and growing and seeing the Lord use us, then we have the life hereafter where righteousness dwells forever and ever and ever. So the key phrase here is, for my sake. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. People may die for all kinds of things. They may die for all kinds of causes. History tells us that people do. They'll die for this or that or the other cause. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. On a human level, those things are noble. But this is something higher and deeper and eternal. It's dying for the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus walked that road. He died for his own. And he says, go out and be willing to die so that others might live. The issue here is not dying per se. It is dying for the sake of Jesus and putting his priorities over and above our own. To die for the cause of Christ is not easy. He didn't say it would be easy. That's why he says, take up your cross. And in the reference in Luke, says, take up your cross daily. We're in a living, dynamic, daily relationship with the Holy One who is calling us every day to put him first, every day to set things aside so that we're spending time with him, every day to focus on him. We need to be men and women of the cross, and we, it might be that we bear the scars of the cross because we're living for the Lord. As the late Baptist preacher Vance Havner says, we need men of the cross with the message of the cross bearing the marks of the cross. Ministry in the Lord is, is always worth it, even when it's not easy. There's always things in every ministry responsibility that we may not like to do, may not be fun to do, maybe we're not even good at it, they might not be pleasant, but when we do them with his love, for his glory, for the purposes of his people, we find what it means that he is the sword bringer. He separates those who are with him and those who are not. And the cross will always divide people. But then he moves on. He says, not only is he the great sword bringer, Jesus is the reward giver. Jesus is the reward giver. We might be tempted and even timid to not talk about rewards because somehow it doesn't seem right. And yet here Jesus is clearly talking about rewards in ministry and does many times in his teaching. He promises rewards for those that serve him faithfully. He promises rewards for those who help those serve him faithfully. And so he says, we need to be about the business of receiving the messenger. Whoever receives you receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. So as we obey the Lord, as we do what we know to do, because after all, we do read this word. And we go out and we follow it and we do it. We will receive varied responses to what we do. It's the history of the church. There's always been varied responses to the preaching of the gospel. Varied responses to any type of ministry done in his name. And that will include us. 
And so we should expect that there'll be varied responses. Not everyone will appreciate our intentions. Not everyone will understand what we are doing. Not everyone will like the words that we share. And so some will oppose us. Sometimes with great energy and emotion. Just like they did to Jesus. But he says, if, you re- if they receive you, they receive me, and they receive the one who sent me. And so we see this intimate relationship that goes on where the Father has sent the Son. And the Son now sends out his, his disciples. And there's one more sending that's not mentioned here, but it is in the Gospels. And that is, after Jesus returns to the, to, to the Father's right hand, he and the Father send the Spirit. So that the Spirit will dwell and live with the people of God and empower them and mediate the presence of Jesus so that they can go out and represent Jesus. And so as the Father has sent the Son and the Son has sent the disciples and the Father and the Son send the Spirit upon the disciples, they go out to be his ambassadors. They go out to be his spokespeople. And if we're an ambassador, as we know that we are, as Paul reminds the church in Corinth, An ambassador's role is not to bring his own message. It is to bring the message of the one who sent him. You go to any embassy in the world and you walk in and the ambassador there and those working there represent not the country in which they live, but the country from which they've come. And we are now citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And as we go out and proclaim, we are ambassadors preaching that message of the kingdom of heaven, which is valid for all time and among all peoples and in every circumstance. We don't bring our own message. We bring the message that we've been given because of Christ. And then we will be opposed. And we may experience persecution. We may experience opposition. Just like Jesus did. If they did it to him, Jesus said, if they did it to me, they will do it to you. So on the receiving of the messenger, Jesus reminds us also there are different types of messengers. God doesn't always do things the same way. With every person, he gives different talents, he gives different abilities, he gives different opportunities. So he begins by saying, the one who receives a prophet, because he is a prophet, will receive a prophet's reward. And a prophet is one who preaches the word of God with accuracy and conviction. Now in the Old Testament, there was the office of prophet, where Jeremiah and Daniel and Ezekiel and others would be set apart under the call of God to give a direct message of God. And God would reward them. They often faced great opposition. But in the New Testament, it's different now because we have the complete revelation of God that we go out and proclaim. And that message has been given to the church. And so we go out as the church and as different leaders giving a prophetic message because we preach the word of God with clarity, but not like the prophets of the Old Testament. And as we go out and preach that word with clarity, as we preach it with conviction, some will respond to the message and believe. Others will oppose. And yet here Jesus talks about those who will come alongside and enable their messages and will help them so that they can do their work. And God says, I will reward them. Those who share in the message of proclamation will receive the reward of the proclamation as it goes out. And then he says, and the one who receives a righteous person, because he is a righteous person, will receive a righteous person's reward. And, of course, Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not see the kingdom of heaven. Which brings us to the end of ourselves because our righteousness cannot surpass theirs. It is a righteousness that he gives. 
It is a righteousness that he brings. It is a righteousness that is accredited to us at the moment that we believe. The righteous is the one who is clean in the eyes of the Lord, who has experienced the the new birth with the indwelling spirit and now is joyfully living according to the commands of God. And so as believers go out and do ministry, those who work with them and help them in their ministry will receive a reward. Just as Jesus promised. It's a good thing to serve the Lord. It's a good thing to serve the Lord's people. And then he concludes with, and whoever gives one of these little ones, even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple. I'm going to stop there. Who are these little ones? Us. His disciples. Oftentimes Jesus refers to his disciples as little ones. They may not have the status. They may not have had the office of apostle. They may not have had the name recognition. But they serve joyfully wherever it might be. And Jesus is proud to call them brothers as we see in the book of Hebrews. And as we are recognized by God. He keeps track of what happens even to the little ones, even to us. We're going to celebrate Thanksgiving this afternoon with testimony and song and dinner. And one of the things I'm going to be thankful for and I will continually be thankful for is that throughout all eternity, God included me as one of the little ones who will be in his presence forever. Whatever ministry you have, wherever it is, whether you think it's in obscurity and no one sees it, whether it's high profile, God sees what you are doing, brings reward for it if you're doing it well, and will reward those who come alongside you because the work of the ministry needs to be done in partnership, in teamwork, as the body of Christ works together. So great is your reward. Jesus says, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Those that he has called, those that he gives tasks to, those that he empowers, those that he helps, as they serve him, he promises there will be rewards, and he knows how to reward even the smallest of gifts. What could seem to be smaller than a cup of cold water? Now, I know that in a desert situation, a cup of cold water is a great blessing, but it doesn't last very long. But it is a great blessing, even though it might seem small. You see, in God's economy, he blesses obedience. He blesses those who obey him. And he blesses those who say, I'm willing to follow the cross, the way of the cross, and give what I have so that the the cause of Christ can go forward. The ones that Jesus is talking about here, the little ones are those who have picked up the cross and are following him. Trusting in his grace, leaning upon him for his mercy and righteousness. But they need to be sword bearers or cross bearers first. Because as Spurgeon said, there are no crown wearers in heaven who are not first cross bearers here below. No cross, no crown. But with the cross, there will be a crown. Over two dozen passages in the New Testament talk about rewards of believers, that there will be different degrees and levels of rewards given according to what the Lord has done in and through us. Ultimately, it's all for his glory. Ultimately, everyone in, in heaven will be satisfied being in the presence of God. But the distribution of rewards will be different. 
So as we see Jesus in this passage, he said why he came. He came to bring division between those who believe and those who do not believe. He said, I give peace to those who repent and believe and follow, but I can't give peace to those who are outside. He says, there is great joy and great love in following Jesus and in helping others to serve him. To quote Charles Spurgeon again, he tells the story of King of Cyrus, the one, the ancient Persian king who had liberated Babylon and who sent the the people of Israel back to the land. He sent them free from their captivity. And he built a big and beautiful garden. And visitors would come and look at the garden and admire it for his beauty. And he says, ah, but you have not so much pleasure in this garden as I have, for I have planted every tree myself. As Spurgeon commented on this, he said, one reason some saints will have a greater fullness in heaven is that they, were, they did more for heaven than others. By God's grace, they were enabled to produce greater fruit. So with that challenge then, let's do some thinking. What impact are we going to have? What impact will you have? What will your life accomplish? How many people will be affected and touched and prodded and moved and developed and on their way to heaven because of God working through us? I know as we stand before the throne and as we take off all the rewards that we have been given and we cast them back down at the feet of Jesus, I want to have some things that I can cast back down at his feet. I want my life to have mattered for eternity. I want people to be there because God in his mercy and grace moved through my life into theirs. And they're now part of the great throng that is there. Next week, we're going to look at the ministry of, of John the Baptist, who was suffering in prison for Christ. He's contemplating the true nature of Jesus. Who is this Jesus really? But until we get there, what are some lessons we can take away from today's sermon? Well, first, knowing that the cross divides people, we will stand firm in Jesus, even if those close to us reject him. There is pain in that separation. There is pain in that rejection. But love Christ first and let him work in your heart to love others better. Secondly, knowing that in loving Jesus first, we love others better, we will make Jesus the first love and priority of our life. Jesus first, Jesus number one, Jesus only, Jesus above all else. Thirdly, because Jesus is worth dying for, he is also worth living for. So personalize it. So I will take up my cross and follow him. Fourthly, because God sends out his servants to minister to others, we will receive and help them in their ministries. Be, a, be the ultimate team player in whatever ministry God has given you. In whatever its context, whatever its milieu, whatever its level of obscurity or public appearance. Use it for the glory of God, for the well-being of his people and for the good of those that can be impacted by that ministry. And lastly, because God rewards even the smallest of gifts, we will make available all that we have for his service and glory. What do we have that we have not received, Paul asked the church in Corinth. And the answer is nothing. We've received it all of grace. So with open hands, let's make it all available.
for the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, as we contemplate these words of Jesus, they're sharp. They have an edge. They sting. They hurt. You said that your word is able to separate even joint and marrow, soul and spirit. But Father, even in the hurting as a reminder of our own fallenness and our own sin, we say thank you that you loved us enough to point it out to us. And then we say thank you for your grace. And we ask you to lavishly pour out your grace upon us now as we confess our sins, as we acknowledge what is wrong in our lives. We turn to you and we thank you that ultimately we are completely dependent upon you and that is a good place for us to be. And so once again, we surrender all and say, Jesus, you be the Lord of our lives and teach us to walk with you and help us to enjoy you as we walk with you. And may we be the aroma of Christ to those around us. So thank you, Lord. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit. Thank you for your truth. Thank you for this time together. Guide us this week in light of this holy word for your glory. In Jesus' name.